America isn't perfect. America wasn't perfect at its founding. America will never be perfect. Because more so than any nation, America was born on the idea that on God's green earth, perfection is impossible. That is why we have a system of checks and balances. But also more so than any nation in human history, America is about the pursuit of perfection, the pursuit of a more perfect union, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of liberty, equality, and justice for all. Those are the values that won the American Revolution. Those are the values that reunited us after the Civil War. Those are the values that won us World War I and World War II and the Cold War. Those are the values that still give hope to the free world. And if we can revive those common values over fractious group identity, then nobody in the world, not a nation, not a corporation, not a virus is going to defeat us. That is what true American exceptionalism is all about. And that is what we will need to revive in order to defeat this cultural epidemic. Thank you. God bless you. God bless your families. God bless the United States. Thank you. Welcome to season four of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. The theme for this season is Fight for America. In this sixth episode of season four, we feature an interview with New York Times bestselling author and successful biotech entrepreneur, Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek is a first-generation American, the anti-woke author of Woke Incorporated, and the founder and executive chairman of Royvant Sciences, a new type of biopharmaceutical company focused on the application of technology to drug development. Our No Better Friend Corp team was honored to host Vivek for the second time in Wisconsin for our Fight for America rally in West Dallas in early November of 2021, where we hosted a crowd of over 1,000 people. In today's episode, Vivek explains and defines critical race theory, woke culture, and cancel culture. He talks about his new book, Woke Incorporated, where he writes about his firsthand experiences in elite corporate America, and he explains his belief that the biggest threat to liberty and prosperity in America today is the hybrid of big government and big business. He says that together, they can do more than what either can do on their own to restrain the liberty of everyday Americans. This discussion is an important cautionary tale, and I hope it leaves you with a sense of the challenge before us and our path towards creating a better future for America. This is the Right Idea Podcast. Well, welcome to the Right Idea Podcast. We're here in West Dallas, and I'm with Vivek Ramaswamy, who we have brought back to Wisconsin. We've had you in Dane County. Now we got you in Milwaukee County, and we were just talking like how far we were from your last location. Welcome back to Wisconsin. Good to be back. Glad we're thrilled to, be to have here. you. We're yeah. thrilled to have you. And um, that event, Madison, it was pretty warm, if you remember right. It was toasty back then. <laughs> Less so now. Less so. Although, I'll tell you this. I came yeah. from Columbus, Ohio, which is home for me. Yep. And I thought it was going to be colder here. And you know what? I took my jacket off when I got off the plane. Did so, you really? So yeah, absolutely. So is it colder in Columbus? It's colder right? in Columbus right now. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. So it was a nice surprise. We went directly from summer to quasi-winter. Like okay. we had no real fall. It never really year. happened. Okay. Yeah, it was kind okay. of bizarre. We had like 60, 70 degree weeks and all of a sudden it just dropped in the 20s. So. Climate change. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it gets colder. Sometimes it gets warmer. We'll call it weather change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Weather exactly. change, I think, exactly. is the same exactly. thing. Happens every year. Yes, exactly right. Exactly. 
Now, if you remember, speaking of weather, uh, when you came to Dane County, we got uh, 500 people together uh, to yeah. talk about critical race theory and what we need to do. And to I enjoyed continue. that. It was, we had, it was a good series of speakers. I actually yep. learned a lot listening to the, some of the other speakers, too. So, And our audience learned a lot from all Thank of you. you. You did an incredible job. And if you remember, 500-some people showed up in Dane County, as one of our speakers talked about, one of the, the, the homes of the birth of critical race theory, yeah. unfortunately. Um, those folks came actually through tornado warnings. Not That's watches. right. That night. I remember that. That's yeah. true. It was, it was a rough weather night that <laughs> it night. It was. That's true. Yes. So it might be a little chilly out there because um, we actually have a tent out in the parking lot for the event that we're about to do after our podcast uh, with yourself, Buck Sexton, and Ivory Hecker. It's going to be an amazing group. Awesome. And we got tons of people signed up, so we're super excited about it. So Excellent. Thanks so much Excellent. for coming in. No, really looking forward to it. So let's talk about it. We talked, obviously, you've addressed people in Wisconsin across the entire country about critical race theory. You know that no better friend has taken this fight around the, t- the state of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things to do, even though we do it repeatedly, is to continue to define critical race theory so that our audience can take that message forward. Because sure. you know there's a ton of gaslighting on this, pretending it's not real. Talk to me about your definition of critical race theory. Sure. And I think I, think I love the definition of, of talking about critical race theory, woke culture, cancel culture. I think we should, I think we should define cancel culture separately, too, because yep. all these words get thrown around. Right. And it's really worth unpacking what they mean. Right. So critical race theory and its associated cousin of the broad woke culture that, that's uh, the product of critical race theory basically says that our social universe is governed by invisible power relationships. Right. It borrows from Marxism in that respect because Marxism said that our social universe was governed by invisible power relationships grounded in economic power. That rich people had power, that poor people didn't, and that was the power and relationship it was we were concerned with. And it was intractable. But right. it was intractable in the Marxist right. view. Actually, it turns out that the Marxist worldview is wrong because many times poor people do become rich, and many times rich sometimes rich people become poor too. Go but, but be that as it may, right. I think what the what the woke agenda did, and I think critical race theory was was the intellectual underpinning for it, said that actually the real power relationships weren't economic power relationships. No. They were racial power relationships and inherited power relationships, if you brought in critical theory to include critical gender theory or as it's being applied to sexual orientation today, (laughs) that race and gender and sexual orientation govern the new power relationships that govern our invisible social universe. And what what they call on us to do is to wake up to those power relationships (laughs) so as to correct the injustices arising from it. Now, there's different strands to critical race theory, but right. you know Derek Bell, who was one of the original thinkers, you know, decades ago, right. basically at least had an original idea. And what he said is actually racism, the the sort of attitudes and behaviors that fall out of those power relationships based on race, wasn't just an individual act. It was something that was interwoven into the systems of governance itself, into our laws into our system of free market capitalism. It was so much a part of the system that racism included the disparate effects that that would have and the disparate outcomes that we see between races. So that gives you a taste of of sort of critical race theory and the associated culture of woke culture that was born from it. And and we could go on, there's actually other strands to it. Some people who were more in the camp of actually saying this was the product of what they call uh, interests converged or interest convergence theory that says actually the, the, there was an interest in place to make sure that certain classes of people never broke through. Mm-hmm. And I bring that up because I actually talk about interest convergence theory in a very different context of how in the modern post-2008 capitalist environment, there's been a new interest convergence between big business mm-hmm. and the critical race theory movement itself. <laughs> which I want that, to talk about. That, 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 that kind of brings the whole circle. That it's part of your book, yeah, Woke exactly. Inc., which we're going to talk about in just a moment. 
Before we do that, um, I want to ask the question. You talked about, well, you were beginning to allude to disparate impact. And disparate impact is the back end and the legal mechanism used by organs of government and the left to try to come in and, and basically execute punishment on the basis of the theories that you're talking yeah. about. Basically saying that if there is any type of inequitable, per their definition, uh, result, it could be in terms of loans that are extended to different segments of the population. It could be in terms of educational results. Yep. Um, that the government at various levels from the DOJ on down can come in and sue and basically say that the core problem is matters of racism versus a whole other set of realities, which could be bad public schools that result in, in inequitable uh, results in terms of testing and so on and so forth, or bad economic uh, landscapes that people can't get good jobs and they can't get loans. But talk a bit about that disparate impact piece of it and how it kind of comes around the, the theories you're talking about in order to give the government ability to come in and punish people. Yes, yeah, so, so so the basic theory, it's not my worldview, but the basic worldview is that anything that has a disparate impact as measured by disparate results mm -hmm. is itself prima facie, that means in legal language in Latin, on its face, evidence of discrimination. That's effectively the core claim of the critical theory, critical race theory movement of the woke movement that I think has an impact for public policy. So what, what does that mean? What could that mean? If, how, if you really believe that, how do you correct for it? You get to what Ibram Kendi has suggested for, as a solution for U.S. public policy, which is to say that the U.S. needs a department of anti-racism that evaluates any law passed by Congress through our system of constitutional governance as to whether it's going to have a disparate impact on persons of color, or in particular, black people, and if so, needs to be adjusted in a way that ensures that it no longer has that disparate impact. Agree or not, I'm not saying I agree or not, I happen to not agree, I'm just giving a description that is the definition of what he of has what to say. And, and, and the right. way he summarizes it in his book is that if disparate impact is evidence of systemic racism, by definition, that means that you have to use the tools of discrimination to fight back against that disparate impact. So an exact quote from his book, I'm going to quote it exactly or near exactly, is that the remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. End stop. So I think that that is, is sort of piece number one. Piece number two is actually then, if you're a member of that class, the class who suffers from the disparate impact, right. you are obligated to have one and only one voice to fight it. So that's where, again, you don't have to take it from me. Uh, it's in his from, book. Con it's in his book. You it's can take it from book. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who, who mm -hmm. is another high priest of this new religion, who famously said that we don't want any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't want any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice, end quote. Once you've conflated someone's race, their, their skin right. color, with their voice. Their First Amendment right. Th th exactly. Yes. That automatically then labels any disagreement with that voice yeah. as racist. And there is no greater damnation in modern America than to be a racist. So when given, and this is, by the way, how even persons of color can be deemed to be racist Black people can be racist if they say the wrong thing 
that disagrees with the black voice, which ironically a lot of white elites have adopted as their own. And, yeah, exactly. So therein we have right. this farce where blackness and whiteness have been transformed from these the trivial characteristics that have to do with the color of our skin, which to me doesn't matter very much right. as about your humanity, right. to instead be transformed about these views that you're committed to having. And if you are a black person who disagrees with a white person who happens to have the black view, that makes you racist as the black person. Enter Larry Elder in the race of, yeah. of, of yeah. the California governor, Absolutely. who in the, in the final weeks of the election has a white woman wearing a gorilla mask, spitting on him effectively and calling him names. And it's yet insane. that's actually... Larry Elder labeled the face of white supremacy. So that's how you get to the well, black man, by the way, labeled labeled as the face of white supremacy. So that's kind of how you get to the tortured interpretations of how the modern postmodern world works according to these new critical race theory rules. Right. But it's good. It's important to understand it before you solve set out to solve the problem. Because it is so insane, and it's it's unlike anything. I mean, the left has never achieved what they have in the United States today in previous times. There's been, of course, leftist movements uh, throughout yeah, the, our nation's history, but the, there is some amount of confluence of digital platforms allowing what would otherwise be extreme viewpoints, which maybe wouldn't get airtime yep. to, to flourish and for to find other adherents and so on and so forth. So there's that dimension. Um, and then there's just, in your book talks about it, this confluence between corporate America, mainstream media, and of course, digital titans coming together in order to push these ideas in a way that never probably would have otherwise happened if not for that confluence. And I think that it's so important because as we talk about woke culture, we talk about uh, critical race theory so often, and it is important, and we, we stress a lot, no better friend, the focus is on what's happening in education. Must be stopped in mm -hmm. education. I think there's a couple important things that we need to do and to include forced transparency and also to use the, the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 to get after these curriculums that exist. But you bring to bear a whole other incredibly important argument, which is what is happening in the ostensible private sector in the United States in order to push these narratives in a way we've really never seen in this country before. Mm -hmm. Talk more about what's in that book, Woke Inc., and why it is so important to be aware of it. Well, look, I, the, the thesis in the book comes from my own firsthand experiences. I'm not writing as a journalist. I had the privilege of being the kid of immigrants who came to this country with not very much money, mm -hmm. to having lived the full arc of the American dream, to have really built a multi-billion dollar biotech company right. that I had the privilege of leading as a CEO. We got drugs approved for patients who needed them. The one I'm most proud of today is an FDA-approved drug for prostate cancer that we developed. Sounds, that's real science. That's real science. Real exactly. science. Real science. Yeah, <laughs> something, that I, something that I think is really important to distinguish from yes. the church of scientism. It's a different thing. And, and just, like, just like it's really important to distinguish real diversity from the church of diversity. That's a parallel discussion for us to have. Right. But, but anyway, the, the, the book was about my experiences in elite America. And I wasn't born into elite America, but I've lived it. Mm -hmm. I went to Harvard, went to Yale Law School. I worked in elite hedge funds in New York City. That's where I got my first job, right before the 08 financial crisis, which right. shaped a lot of my views. I started a company that's gone on to be successful. The thing I learned in corporate America is that there is a new invisible force at work, and it works like a magic trick. You pretend like you care about something other than profit and power, <laughs> precisely to gain more profit and power. <laughs> and that is an act of hypocrisy, but it's worse than hypocrisy. Yeah, it is. It's now dividing our country to a breaking point because it demands that a small group of executives and investors and elite business leaders mm -hmm. decide behind closed doors what actually the right moral way of life is for the rest of society mm -hmm. at large. And to me, that isn't America. Right. It's a betrayal of what America is supposed to be all about. Absolutely. And so. 
What I do in the book is I lay out how this curious marriage between big business and the woke movement came to be, just to understand what the origin story was. It was an untold story. Right. How a third actor got in on that, that very few people have understood the, the, their role in this, which is the Chinese Communist Party, mm-hmm. using this as a geopolitical tool to weaken the United States from within. But more importantly, how an understanding of that problem paves the way for a better way forward, which is right. really my hope for where we, where we go with the book and, you know, and the second book that I'm writing and, and a movement that I'm looking to build around the ideas in the book. And you are. And you're out there uh, bringing the truth across the entire country, which is why we love having you here and why Thank I you. think it's so important to have this conversation. And it, and it really is. One of the things that I've talked about before um, and uh, on Vicki McKenna's show, which you joined just the other day, we talked about yeah. this a little bit further, is our political class, I'm not putting words in your mouth, this is my perspective, has allowed our public square in so many ways to slip into the hands of private actors. And in a way that, again, has never existed before. The The construct of the Constitution, the First Amendment, stops the government from restricting your First Amendment. But it's not well suited if, if we've allowed what has happened to happen to stop private actors, which now control so much of the communication that occurs in a broadcast manner, that's one thing, <clears throat> but also to in person-to-person communication because um, this is so many ways how we are communicating with each other right now through social media and when you have Institutions that are aligning the way they are in order to carry forward the message of the extreme left Which again paints the country as intractably racist and mm-hmm. tries to pit people against each other It is extremely hard to stop unless you get at their business model. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that I've devoted a lot of thought since writing the book to how to actually translate into action a plan that reverses this trend because it's not big government anymore. And I think one of the things that the conservative movement need to, needs to wake up to is that the biggest threat to liberty and prosperity in America today is not just big government. That is only half the story. Right. It's part it is of this the new hybrid. It's part of the story. It's half the story. Right. But it is this new hybrid of big government and big business that together can do more than what either government or business can do on its own because government is constrained by this thing called the Constitution, but big business isn't. And government has military force and police force behind it, while big business doesn't. Well, guess what? Each one gets what the other one doesn't have to be able to restrain the liberty of everyday Americans. But that's a tricky proposition because when government delegates its dirty work to private actors, private actors get to hide behind the veneer of being a private actor. Exactly. When in fact, they're carrying out the dirty work of government and ought to be bound by the Constitution when they're ultimately acting as an agent of the state. Right. One of the things I argue in the book is if it is state action in disguise, as we see in big tech today, then the Constitution still applies. Yeah. Now, now I think that the question, though, that you asked was how do we sort of chart that course and uh, change that for the better? This brings me to a point that I've wrestled with a lot. I'm, I'm conflicted on it, but I've come to peace with what I think is the right <clears throat> resolution going forward and something that I expect to focus on more, which are responses within the private sector itself. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that I think there is a massive vacuum for businesses that meet most Americans, 75 plus million Americans at least, Mm -hmm. who are disaffected from the current economy, who are forced to buy products from people who hate them, from people who look down on them, from people who ultimately don't, not only don't share their values, but look down on them for not sharing their values back. I struggled with this because I don't want to see two economies. I don't want to see a right-wing version of coffee and a left-wing version of coffee as we have today between Black Rifle and Starbucks. I don't want to see, I hope we never see the day when we have a right-wing version of baseball Mm -hmm. 
and a left-wing version of baseball. If we do get there to have a conservative basketball and a conservative and a, and a, and a liberal basketball, I think that might be the beginning of the end of the American experiment as we know it, because right. we require an apolitical private sector to bring us together, irrespective of exactly. whether we're Democrat or Republican, irrespective of whether we're black or white, irrespective of whether we're gay or straight. It does not matter. However, we're not starting from neutral territory. We are starting from a place in which the private sector has already embraced one far end of the political and cultural spectrum in a way that leaves open the question of how we fix that with principles of neutrality as the long-term goal. We may need to actually create a short-term mechanism that doesn't go right wing. Yeah. But that explicitly have businesses that embrace simple ideas like the idea that we're one nation under God, like the idea that the Bill of Rights is non-negotiable, like the idea that part of being American is pursuing excellence unapologetically, right. that free market a capitalism, a meritocracy, that capitalism itself is a system that has lifted more people out of poverty than any system in human history and we right. will not apologize for it. That we believe in the rule of law and we stand with law enforcement officers who are the heroes who enforce that rule of law. Basic ideas that I think most Americans agree with, but to be unapologetic as businesses to say we stand by those values. Right. And I think that there's both a business opportunity there but much more importantly, I think there's an opportunity to, to, to correct this in the one way that I think would be most effective, which is hitting the rest of corporate America where it hurts in their pocketbook. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I hope, if I'm among the people, whoever's among the people starting these businesses, that their heart should actually be in the idea that this is going to wake the rest of corporate America and say, we screwed up. Right. And we're going to come back and serve the people we've abandoned and left behind from our workers to our customers, and that will be a good thing. It right. may mean a smaller market opportunity in the long run for who, whatever entrepreneur decides to take up these opportunities. And, and bluntly, that's something I'm weighing uh, right. and something I struggled with. And the reason right. I didn't do it sooner is I, I really don't like the idea of the two economies. I don't like an alt economy. I don't like a right-wing economy. But an economy that's able to force the hand of corporate America to create and recreate the apolitical spaces that should define our private sector, that I think is a big part of the solution. I agree. And, and it, a market should react. In, yeah. in, in essence, if you've got market actors that are literally disparaging their customers, and I do think social media is a different a different animal because we are not the customers of social media. We are the product, and we are being sliced and diced mm-hmm. and analyzed, and our data is being sold, and we're more, again, a product to be, to be used. But in so many other aspects of the private economy, mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. You still have people that are literally selling products to people, and those companies are looking down on the actual uh, consumers of their products. And... Yes, that should open up a, a really wide gap for people to, to come into and just sell real products to people and treat them decently. Mm-hmm. And, and that sounds pretty basic, right? It like, does sound pretty basic. 101 but, capitalism, but there's but, a room for it. But there's room for reviving right. our, our uh, idea of the things that we once took for granted that we can no longer take for granted that actually right. may be sacred. Right. That what we need to revive is, is the sanctity of the basic values that define this nation in the first place. The things that when we were kids we probably took for granted. Right. I think are the kinds of things that we need to restore today. Exactly. At the heart of not just a conservative movement but an American movement. Right. Could not agree more. You mentioned some of your uh, schools. I want to talk about that for a minute. So you did Harvard, Yale. I did uh, for grad school Harvard and Dartmouth. I've seen them both. 
Um, have you yet been on the cover of the Harvard Alumni Magazine? Yeah, I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think so. You know, it's funny. They did a profile of me when I graduated. Oh, did they? In the senior year. I don't know if it's Harvard Alumni Magazine or, or what, what or some, some whatever magazine, whatever their magazines was. Uh, but not since then, no. I, I would imagine not. Yeah. You know, when you I know, get it's that a shame. Magazine, I mean, not, right not, not my, my magazine on the face and the cover is not the shame, but it's a shame that you would be able to predict what the, what the political <laughs> orthodoxy is that influences you know, what the institution stands for and, and who they want to highlight as future leaders for future students to Correct. look up to, right? Correct. And I think that I'm really disappointed in places like Harvard and Yale. I mean, back when I went there, sure, there was a, I just got water. It was, it was a, uh, it was a liberal place. Sure. That was cool. It was yeah. fun. There was still conservatives. <laughs> there was vibrant discussion on campus. Correct. You could say what you thought. You could, you, you could be friends with them. You know, you could. I mean, most of my friends, we had violently different opinions and, sure. and would, would get dinner and drinks at the end of the day. That was what the culture was all about, is pushing right. each other to be the best version of yourselves, right. to think about something differently than you thought about it. And you know what? Occasionally, as I did a few times, change my mind on something that I never imagined myself changing my mind about. It's called that's, education. It's called education. <laughs> and in fact, you get a better education if you're in the minority with respect to your perspectives because you get your do. perspectives challenged more. Right. And when you're paying 40 grand a year, it's, it's, yeah, at the time, it's more now, you, you better darn well want to get your money. more. not get that education. Exactly, right? get that education. <laughs> so that's what, that's, what, that's what Harvard's like. And even Yale, when I went there for law school, it was the beginning of a transformation that I think has really uh, seen the Yale Law School go to a, a sorry place since yeah. then, I'm sorry to say, especially what I've seen this year. Has, has made me ashamed. Right. But these are different institutions now. They're yeah. different places that view their role as not educating students, but of making the world a better place. Now, what's wrong with making the world a better place? Not much, if you're really making it a better place. It depends on your perspective. But it presumes the hubris yes. that yes. one person <laughs> or one institution can know right. what makes the world better, as opposed to creating a generation of adult minds Right. that together can engage in debate and deliberation over the course of their adult lifetimes as citizens right. of the United States or other countries or of the world to be able to determine how we solve those problems through the best ideas in an idea meritocracy. Right. And I think that once an institution that's founded on that model of education shifts to a model of orthodoxy that trains people to adhere to an orthodoxy to make the world better according to one conception of the way the world might be better. Right. I think we're in for, for a dangerous ride for an entire generation to come. Right. And that generation then takes a, a hold of the private institutions in our private economy and our private sector. That's how you get to where we are today. And right. I think that the answers are not easy. The, the hard thing about the situation we're in is that there are no easy answers. Right. It's part of why I wrote a book about it, though, is that I think that we got to dig deep to understand the problem and see it with clear eyes. Exactly. And I think that with that, the beginning of a solution may follow. Well, they're digging deep. That's what I wanted to get to with this. So literally, and you use the word orthodoxy, it's a hard century. These institutions, and many millions of Americans hear these names of these institutions and have a reflexively negative response to them for many different reasons. But it is a replacement of the concepts that were fought through and dug into in the Enlightenment with, with an orthodoxy that yeah. says that they know the best. And the thing about that Enlightenment was there was a lot of digging and thinking, what is this? And what are we trying to get to? This mm -hmm. concept of equality before law and God, right? And sure. That's, of course, baked directly into our Constitution, which is why our nation created so much prosperity. This concept of your rights are your own. What you do, for good or better, is your own, and you mm -hmm. are accountable for it. You will reap the reward. You will pay the penalty if you yourself uh, perpetrate acts of evil. And that's why the whole system worked. But there was a lot of thought that went into the creation of the Enlightenment, the ideas came out of it. And when you see an orthodoxy coming, which is literally designed to crush 
mm-hmm. those thoughts. That is what is, I think, so deeply threatening. And while people might not always put it quite the way we are in this conversation, it is that sense of like everything these institutions are putting out is meant to crush many, many hundreds of years of very well thought out ideas that brought us to this point of prosperity mm-hmm. in a system where we could operate as equals and go off and do great things like you have done in the private sector and create wealth and opportunity for people. Mm-hmm. And that is what is so deeply threatening about it. When you see these institutions turn from mm-hmm. academic institutions, from corporations to you name it, and that's why it's so important to be out there doing what you're doing and carrying the message forward and simply not quit on it. Thank you, man. So I appreciate that. No, I appreciate that. It's including including nights like tonight. And yeah. I, and I'm glad to be you in know, big tents my, in West Dallas, Wisconsin. You know what? Where I, you... I'm happy to be here. I feel I feel at home. Actually, it's not that different than Columbus, it's not Ohio. That different than but, Columbus, but, yes. uh, but it's cool to be here, and I'm yes. glad. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. And you know, I think I think I'm gonna I, I'm gonna hit some different themes than what we touched on last time. I know we talked about critical race theory and sure. education, and that battle is far from won, but man, was there a milestone earlier this week when the nation spoke at the ballot box, which Let's is how it's that. supposed to work. Yeah. So, so you know, I think that I think the next front is is going to be in our culture and in our corporations, and so I'll shift the theme a little bit tonight. Yeah. Some of the same themes, but but we can hit them in different ways than we did last time too. Which I think is great, and and yes, there was a great. A great awakening uh, that happened in Virginia, nearly in New Jersey, although it sent strong. It's pretty darn close. Yeah, I was going to say, right? Very close. Um, but in Virginia, particularly northern Virginia, an area I'm sure that you've been through and seen, oh, yeah. like far left of center, uh, for sure. And many people that are working off the government and are institutionalized and all the ways we're saying, had their eyes open as they saw their children really being indoctrinated, indoctrinated with messages of hatred. Uh, totally. Messages that run directly against the grain of what the country is mm-hmm. about. And so it is inspirational to see people stand up and say, enough's enough, not a chance. And then you see the shell-shocked media, which like, wow, they are having a hard time processing the fact that Virginia could go from, what, Biden up 15 or something oh, yeah. like that? Oh, yeah. To losing a gubernatorial in the space of, you know, two years. It's amazing. Two years, less. Yes. Less than two years, yeah. Right. Exactly. Pretty remarkable. So, so I, I do think it's remarkable because I think that... When you start to talk about children in the next generation, you're not talking about politics anymore. You're talking about the culture and you're talking right. about what actually matters to you as a human being and exactly. not as a political actor. A lot of immigrants tend to vote Democrats. But speaking about my own uh, parents who came from India, sure. about 72%, I think, of Indian, uh, maybe maybe even higher, actually, but 70s, in the, well into the 70s percentage of Indian Americans voted for President Biden. However... The reason an immigrant comes to this country legally through the front door, not through the back door, through the southern border, that's not really a, an immigrant at all in my view. Right. An immigrant who legally comes to this country through the front door comes here for one reason, to pursue excellence and to yeah. pursue the American dream. Right. And I don't care whether you're black, brown, white, man, woman, what language you spoke, right. that's what you come here to America to do. That's what this place is all about. It's not even a place, it is right. a vision of what a place can be. It's a vision of what you can achieve anything you ever want, irrespective of the color of your skin or where you came from. Exactly. And when you see that vision being threatened by a new orthodoxy that says that actually you can't achieve something if you're a certain skin mm-hmm. color. You can't achieve something if you're a certain gender. You can't achieve something if you're a certain sexual orientation. That rejects the very premise of the American idea itself in a way that isn't a conservative idea or a liberal idea. It's a fundamentally anti-American idea. And what you saw is, I think, a lot of immigrants and first-generation Americans who may have voted Democrat who said that 
for this election, I'm going the other way right. because this doesn't go to what I think we should do about taxation or what I think we should do about you know gun rights even on a given day or whatever issues might animate politi- classically political voters. Right. But actually at high turnout and people who transcended political boundaries, in this case in one direction, right. from Democrat to Republican, to say that this isn't even about politics, this is about our culture. Exactly. And this is about our culture in a way that impacts our kids and the very reason I came to this country in the first place. Yeah. And I think there's, there should be a lesson for Republicans where the next battle frontier is absolutely corporate America, where you're actually seeing even much worse orthodoxies being pushed upon workers than what at least schools are doing to kids, which has been pretty bad too, but at least yeah. they try to shield it in some sort of you know PG-rated version of the same thing that right. they're feeding yeah, from American Express to Bank of America and corporate America to their employees and their workers today, or even Walmart is. Yeah. That I think that the tough part for the Republican Party going forward is well, the tough part about fighting corporate America is it's where your bread's been buttered for a long time. <laughs> and I think the Republican Party needs to wake up to the fact that actually the people who've been buttering their bread are now buttering different bread. But you need to actually yeah. think independently about what matters most for the country as opposed to where you're going to get your next campaign contribution. Right. And that's the challenge for the Republican Party heading into 2022. I hope they rise to the occasion. Well, and the plates are shifting as these parties realign right now. And that is that is the story of the, the past decade, really. Massive party alignment. It's always hard to see how these things wind up until they wind up. Yep. And you can step back 10, 20 years from now and look to see. But certainly as you look, you know, you can call it whatever you want, populism or so on and so forth. But there's a massive shift happening in terms of who is actually voting for Republicans yep. and Democrats. Totally. Democrats are becoming this very bifurcated party of super ultra wealthy and those that they view as being poor. And then that leaves a, obviously a massive opportunity for conservatives to win pretty much everybody else. And also, too, I believe, to win those that are in a disadvantaged position to say that we're the ones that believe that you can mm-hmm. succeed through good education and a fundamental belief in what allows you to succeed, which is this country's structure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You bring up your parents quick. I, I think it's it's just a, such an interesting dichotomy, too, especially coming from India, a country which has a built-in structured caste system. Yeah, literally, I, I read about it in the book a little bit. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's just, it must be truly mind-blowing to be in that position of saying, we're making a decision to leave this, to go to a place where that is not going to hold us back. You get here, and then you find people trying to do yeah, it. Yeah, you know, with the Indian caste system, I mean, it's a complicated story, and, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to get too far off topic, sure. but, you know, a lot of times people here, um, you know, myself included, growing up, whatever, have a, have a shallow misunderstanding version of the caste system. Actually, what we think of as the caste system was a British-influenced form of the okay. caste system, which was about keeping people divided so you can yeah. conquer them. It's what the British actually were right. pretty good at around right. the world, right. is divide and conquer, and to put people in categories and to decide where they fit to actually serve their own interests of keeping themselves in power. Right. There was a more ancient version of the caste system. That's more complicated. It, too complicated to discuss right now. It goes, goes sort of a d- d- deep but view of human nature part, and the way people are reincarnated and right. the role that and the duty that one has. And, you know, really, you could even argue that it wasn't an immutable, it was not an immutable conception, the ancient version. But, okay. You know, put that to one side. We could we could debate it. That's a that's a discussion for sort of Hindu historians to, to, to debate and discuss some other day. But you know, the British influence system of the caste system is actually interesting to me mm-hmm. because it resembles what you see today happening right. in America. Yes, <laughs> recreating a caste system that doesn't naturally exist, right. but exists because it allows people to put you into boxes because the person who's doing the putting into the box benefits at the expense of the person who's put into the box. Exactly. And I think that, you know, you're seeing it, to make it really simple, a managerial class that is able to empower itself right. by putting people into demographic boxes. But just because they put us into those boxes doesn't mean we have to stay there 
there's a better way forward. Yes. You know, I think that one of the ways that public schools hide their ways they have failed our kids is to now label math racist. Mm-hmm. I can think of nothing more racist than to call math racist (laughs) on the back of failing to teach poor kids, including many of whom happen to be minorities, how to do math in our public schools. Somebody recently asked me about how the Baltimore school system was performing. I assumed it was performing pretty poorly. They asked me to guess what percentage of people were, of kids, were performing at proficient grade level. I guess something in the teens. Okay. Actually, it turns out I was I was closer than I thought. It was it was like something like thirteen was the number. Oh wow! But then I realized actually it wasn't close at all because when they said thirteen was the number, it wasn't thirteen percent. It was thirteen out of like three thousand kids. Oh, it was individual in the system. Yeah, I mistook the number. I thought they were talking in percentages. Yeah. You could be the grand wizard of the KKK and not design a system that was more effective at holding poor black kids in Baltimore back than the one that we have today. And yet the people who are preaching about the new woke orthodoxy are actually protecting themselves by labeling math as racist as opposed to the system that actually is holding these kids back. And that's what this game is about. It's like the British in India. It's not that they believed in the caste system in the first place. They could care less. They're going to pick whatever system keeps them in power. That's what we're seeing with the managerial class in the United States today crushing the will of everyday Americans. And that's what we need to, to wake up to exactly. to like find that. a better way forward. Well, that's it. And that's, I mean, we I mentioned earlier, I mean, one of the big things we do at No Better Friend, we advocate for education reform and school choice. Wisconsin is yeah. one of the homes of school choice. More can be done to expand it, but it was the first place, one of the first places, I believe, to offer uh, public vouchers to allow kids to I, go to Wisconsin, you're right. Actually, yes. now that you talk about it, that's actually one of the places where I really think we have a model for a country of what can actually work, and it, it ought to not be a partisan issue. Season one of the Right Idea podcast, you need to listen to Okay, it. all right. Okay. It's all about education reform and school choice in Wisconsin. And Awesome. But to your point, who's fighting the institution of school choice? It is that managerial elitist class that is aligning themselves with teachers' unions because those teachers' unions funnel money to their to their political party of choice and help to advance their, their orthodoxy. And so... That ends up being the uh, the system that kept kids out of school physically for the last yeah. past year and a half, and then keeps them in schools that aren't aren't ultimately putting them on a trajectory to succeed. And to your point, like what could be a more insidious and terrible thing to do to kids than to literally lock them into schools that aren't performing in any way, shape, or form? Exactly. So. Exactly. And and it's it's a form of yeah, it's really a modern form of shackles that right. we hold people back except the people who are doing it today are doing it not in the name of racism but in the name of anti-racism it turns out that the, the old clothes it's, it's an old it's an old trick in new clothing so we should it. see through it for what it is exactly well that's why we do discussions like this on the right idea podcast that's why you are going across the entire country taking forth this message that's why we're going to be in a giant tent in a parking lot in west Dallas talking to a ton of people is because you got to tell the truth and you got to open up people's eyes and allow them to fight for themselves in their future, which is why we call it the Fight for America rally. So, Vivek, it was outstanding to have you here on the Right Idea podcast. It's great that we're not even done. You're going to oh, yeah. more people Looking tonight. forward to it. Looking forward to it. And who knows when we will next have you out to Wisconsin, but we're thrilled you can come back. Hopefully it's time. not too long. I, like I said, I love being here. So thank you for guys for having me. Outstanding. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, everybody. And thanks for listening to the Right Idea podcast. And we will be in touch soon. This is the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for joining us in the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, 
or wherever you listen to podcasts.